One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Joanne Ramos, author of the novel The Farm, which tells the story of primarily marginalized women, most who are immigrants from the Philippines, who become hosts at Golden Oaks, an exclusive luxury retreat in the Hudson Valley where women become surrogate mothers for wealthy parents. While the opportunity to be a surrogate helps these women gain more economic freedom, the price they pay and the limitations placed upon them during their pregnancy may not balance out. Before writing her novel, Ramos was a staff writer at The Economist. We began the discussion with Ramos sharing what sort of topics were obsessing her that brought her to write The Farm. I grew up straddling worlds pretty much my whole life. I was born in the Philippines and we moved to Wisconsin when I was six in the late 70s, so a time when um, Racine, my town, wasn't especially diverse uh, and had a great you know, middle-class childhood there and then went off to Princeton as a financial aid kid. And that was a whole new world for me because I'd never really encountered great privilege and great wealth and great entitlement until that experience. So Princeton was the first place I would meet kids my age who had never held a job, not even a summer job, would never need to really hold a job because they would never need to support themselves and knew it and were fine with it and took it as a given. That sort of generational wealth or that sort of entitlement was very new to me and very jarring and and made me feel uh, sort of intrigued, but also like an outsider. And then I went into finance after uh, Princeton um, in part to pay off college debt, in part because I just wanted to make it. I wanted to be practical, and it seems like a great career. And that also blew open my world even more, um, partially because it's a very male-dominated world, particularly when I worked um, after Wall Street. I worked at a leveraged buyout firm. I was the first woman they'd ever hired on the investment side. So they had a lot of – all the support staff was women, but they never had someone on the investing team who was a woman. 
And so that, again, I was sort of in it and out of it and in it and out of it. And then flash forward to my 30s, I'm raising kids in New York City with my husband. I'm home for a bit. And for someone who's raised on achievement, that was another one of those moments of kind of figuring out how I felt about dedicating myself to my kids, particularly because the ethos of my generation, particularly in a certain world in New York, and I think other places is this whole idea of perfect parenting, this whole zeal to give your kids the best of absolutely everything as this crazy college scandal test. Like it can go to really crazy places when uh, people have access and wealth and privilege, this idea that kids should from the get go um, get everything, the best of everything. And it was also around this time that, um, you know, I got to know the people in my new orbit, which was the playgrounds and parks. And a lot of these people were nannies and housekeepers and baby nurses. And a lot of them were Filipinas. And um, even though I grew up in a town where there weren't very many Asians at all, on the weekends, we'd visit my dad's family 20, 30 minutes away. And they were part of a really tight Filipino culture there. And that's where my sense of family really is from. These long Sundays after church, clamorous, lots of food, loud, bunch, you know, my big Filipino family. So flash forward decades and to realize that the only Filipinas I know in my day-to-day life um, are people who work for me or my friends uh, was really jarring. Um, And I got to know some of them and they would talk to me about the kids they left back in Manila or their bosses or the dormitory that some of them lived in renting beds by uh, half day to, to, you know, save money. It just reinforced this feeling that I held at least since Princeton, maybe even before um, that what separates a successful life in America and a not successful life my path from theirs, my opportunities, and heartbreakingly, my kids' opportunities from them and theirs um, had as much or more to do with happenstance as it did with any kind of merit. And my whole life, I've been told, you know, you embody the American dream, your family came and they made it, but what really does that mean? So anyway, all of this stuff, is, it's almost sedimentary, right? It's piling up. It's all there. It's stewing. I always wanted to write. I never really thought it was possible, or I was too nervous, or too practical, or too scared. And then I had the very cliche, I turned 40. And my last kid was off to school, and uh and I was ready to do something. And I realized I didn't want to work. I didn't want to go to my last job, which had been writing for The Economist um, on financial journalism. I was ready to write about all this stuff. And it just took me a while to actually find a topic, but I, but I committed myself to it around the time I turned 40 um, to writing about all of this, um, this stew. Some of the genesis of the farm came from you meeting Filipina nannies at the parks in New York and also thinking about the similarities and differences between you. My life was so so very different from theirs. And it's probably the same in many other immigrant communities, but certainly in the Philippine community, if someone's made it in your community, they're very proud of you. It's the way my mom, who doesn't listen to pop music, knows about Bruno Mars because he's Filipino. <laughs> she doesn't really listen to Bruno Mars, but she knows who he is, and that makes her proud of him. When some of my friends, acquaintances, who were housekeepers, nannies, would say to me, with pride, well, you made it. Um, It just, it it was a weird feeling. I was like, yeah, I made it, but I made it for a lot of reasons, not because, not just because I worked hard. Like you say, oh, you're so smart, you went to Princeton, you made it. I'm like, it's not, that line, that through line doesn't, that narrative doesn't, it's not fully or even mostly fully true. Um, and I would argue that they were living the American dream, too, in the sense of working hard, sacrificing to give at least their children a better life. But it was that whole sort of knot of issues and ideas, which have many precedents, starting with Princeton or starting with growing up a little different, very different <laughs> in my hometown. It was all that stuff that I wanted to write about. Now, was this 
starkly clear in my head when I sat down to start writing in my 40s? No, but I, I knew that I wanted to start with a Philippine nanny or baby nurse taking, who is a mother taking care of someone else's children. That's sort of how it, that was my feeling of where I was going to go with it. And then it was a year and a half later, after many, 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 many failed attempts of first chapters and short stories that I happened to read a Wall Street Journal article about a surrogacy facility in India, which is a place where people were hiring Indian women to carry their babies. And I didn't even do much more or really any more research than that. I just started, the what if started tumbling out of my head. Like, what if I made the surrogates not just women in India? What if they were a cross-section of the nannies as I've come to know and befriend them in lower Manhattan's parks? What if the clients weren't just wealthy Indian people or Westerners hiring women, but the richest of the richest of the rich? What if I made it luxury? Because wouldn't, if you were a billionaire, wouldn't you want your fetus to be housed in a womb somewhere beautiful and clean? And it just kind of went from there. And from that point, it was like three and a half years that I wrote the book. The farm has, it has a few different storylines going on at once. You have your main character, Jane, who is pushed into becoming a surrogate at this sort of luxury facility. And the plot there basically is that very, very wealthy people, not just Americans, but people of of privileged and who have much accomplishment, at least financially in their lives, hire this company to have uh, have the women that they choose be surrogates. And they're sort of in this pristine environment and they're eating healthy food, but they're also called hosts and they're walking around monitored and they don't have much freedom. So that's one storyline. And then Jane, she was kind of introduced to this by her cousin, so Ate is her cousin, and in the beginning we see them struggling. They're living in a dorm-style situation with all Filipinos, and they are just being nannies. They're housekeepers. They're just doing whatever they can to survive. The question that all of this raises, because Jane had a child, and Ate was sending all the money home to her children, and she had she has a son in a wheelchair and three other children back in the Philippines. So everything that they were doing were for their children. And that was what I walked away with was, you know, how far do you go? What sacrifices do you make for your children? And and, and then if you think about it, even with the clients, although they may not raise or foster or spark as much sympathy in people, like the, some of the clients at the farm are people who can't, have children and are dying to have natural children of their own. So I do think that is one of the main takeaways of it. And I think it's a very much a universal story. And I also think it is what motivates a lot of the immigrants and a lot of the domestic workers whom I happen to know, um, that it's unclear if their lives are going to change that much, even though they're working their tails off, but they're doing it for their kids. Um, and, and that is a very universal, but also very immigrant story. I feel like my parents were not domestic service workers by any means. They were middle class and educated, but they, they made sacrifices because it was all about us, this is what me and my siblings. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, 
We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. Well, let's talk a little bit about the characters, Ate and Jane. They're who we meet in the beginning, and they are kind of the fuel. So Ate is older. She's having some heart problems and health problems, but she's known to be sort of the baby whisperer. She gets all the high-end clients in New York. She gets paid really well, and she's very... Um, very frugal with her money. She sends a lot of it back. And she's also kind of figured out what she believes is the psyche of her wealthy employees so she knows how to behave around them. And then Jane is her cousin who leaves a bad marriage with a baby who comes to live with her in the dorm. And Ate sort of takes her under her wing and tries to teach her. But Jane keeps making all these missteps. The book started with Jane, Jane and Amalia, her daughter. Um, and she is a woman, a young Filipino woman without very many good options. And I feel like I know a number of women or have met a number of women like this in my lifetime, um, both growing up and especially in my adulthood in New York. Her husband has a girlfriend, so she left him. She just got fired from a baby nurse job. She doesn't, uh, she wants to give Amalia a better life and doesn't know how, given that she's not very educated and doesn't have great choices as far as jobs. And then she hears about the farm. And whatever we may think as readers about the farm, for her, it sounds like a dream job. Because it sounds like all she has to do is live in the lap of luxury, carry a baby, which, by the way, she's already done with her daughter, so it's not that hard. And, and the difference is that this way she has a chance of making huge money, the kind of money that will change her and Amalia's life for good. And what she realizes is that it's not that easy, right? It's not that easy to be monitored 24-7, to be poked and prodded um, and tracked. It's not easy to live in a house with a bunch of pregnant women who are strangers, especially because she's very shy and reserved. And it's not easy to be cut off from her baby, especially when she starts to get hints that uh, all may not be well in Queens where she left her baby with Ate. The, the, The conflict she finds herself in is that when she signed up to be a host, she didn't just sign away nine months of time. She signed away all control over the nine months. She agreed for those nine months that this baby in her belly will take precedence over everything. And so she's faced with this almost impossible choice, which is pushed to the extreme. But if you think about it, or when I was thinking about it, some of the women I know have made that choice in less fiction-worthy ways in the sense of a fast-paced novel, meaning I know women who have left their, who have not seen their kids for decades and left them in the Caribbean or the Philippines or wherever it may be and support them from afar. And so they are making that sacrifice Uh, for family, but a sacrifice of family. Or think of women who work three jobs, and I know some of these women too, two jobs at least, to support their kids. And their kids are in America, but they're not in great schools and they're home alone a lot. So to me, it was a way to explore that sacrifice um, in an extreme way, um, as a way of maybe seeing 
the day-to-day sacrifices a little more clearly, if that makes any sense. I mean, I think one of the amazing things about fiction is that because it, it involves a leap of faith at the outset, it's made up. Um, I think sometimes readers approach fiction with a more open mind than they might nonfiction or memoir or, or something true, and I say true in quotes, where they already have an opinion. With fiction, you just let it all go and you immerse yourself in the world. And maybe because of that, you end up at, at the end of it thinking about things a little differently. Um, or at least that's what I'm hoping is happening. I hope that happens a little bit with this book, that it's close enough to our life, but also firm enough away that you can accept it and then afterwards maybe question it too. Yeah, I think in to the juxtaposition between Ate and Jane, I mean, Ate's older, she's much more hardened. Yeah. Jane is much more absorbent. She's much more vulnerable. She makes a lot more mistakes. And that idea that Ate is doing everything for this family back at home, and she never gets to see her kid, and Jane suffers so much just from not seeing her kid for a few months, which is, I don't mean just, yeah. I mean... <laughs> it's no, wrong. Know, exactly. It's wrong either way. But also, you know, what kind of gratefulness do the kids have? And you did bring up sort of this idea that all these people are doing so much and their children back at home might be sort of ungrateful or they're not getting off their butts to work. They're just living off the money that gets sent. Of course, there will be many different types of relationships between kids and their often mothers far away supporting them. I know so many women who've done this, again, both from childhood and then also in New York in adulthood. And it is definitely not uncommon that you hear those stories of, of kids back home who are, some of them are very grateful and some of them misspend the money they get. Um, they don't know their moms very well because they haven't seen them since they were little. Um, it becomes almost an entitlement of its own, uh, its own kind of entitlement, right? And to me, when I would hear those stories, that was, the twist in the knife in the side, it was already a difficult enough story to hear about mothers, people, fathers not seeing their children for so long, but then to feel that they weren't close to them anymore, um, to feel that they didn't appreciate it, to feel that I don't, that was to me the, the, an even harder part of the story, because then you start to question what the sacrifice is for. I mean, it's for the family, but it came at the sacrifice of that family and that relationship. Let's talk a little bit about the farm. Jane gets recruited in. The farm is run by a woman named May Yu, and she is kind of this maybe gentle dictator sort of person. She wants to be really good, but it's still the bottom line. Can we talk a little bit about the structure of the farm and May and what it's like for these women? If you imagine the most luxurious retreat that you've ever seen, that would be the farm. It's on 260 private acres, rolling farmlands, pristine ponds. Um, there's a staff of people from yoga instructors, gourmet chefs, nutritionists, catering to the women who stay there. And of course, it's all for free for these women because they're not, all those amenities aren't really for the women. It's for what's growing inside of them because they're all surrogates. Um, the trade that they're making is to lease their wombs for these nine months. Um, in which they agree to be monitored, scrutinized, tests. They agree that they have to eat great food and not endanger the baby in any way. They agree to have their cortisol, which is your stress hormone, monitored so that um, because studies show that stress is bad for the baby in utero. They agree to all of this because at the end of the day, at the end of those nine months, 
if they deliver a healthy child, they get a ton of money. And many of the women who work at this farm, who choose to be hosts, as the surrogates are called at this farm, are women who don't have a lot of good options and, and need the money. Not all of them, because the farm also will hire uh, what they call premium hosts, which tend to be white women, young white women, who are college educated to carry their babies, because the farm has found out that some of their very wealthy clients care about that. They want the way they want the best handbag or the best college degree, they want the best, best in quotes, host for their baby. Um, and so May Yu is the woman who runs this. And it's been, she runs the farm. And it's funny to me because she's always been a source of controversy, starting from when I had just written a few chapters of the farm and would have friends read it. And up till now, when I get a lot of reader emails or Instagrams or texts or things, um, She's a lightning rod of criticism. And in some ways you can get that because she is a woman running a business that commodifies women's bodies and often manipulates women to make sure that they feel good about carrying someone else's child and giving that child precedence over everything else in their life. But if you think about it, Mei Yu is also the American dream. Her dad's Chinese, born in, um, dad's a new Chinese immigrant. Her mother is white. She didn't grow up with a lot of money. She worked her butt off to get into college and to get into business school. She's the first woman ever to be a general manager at the conglomerate that owns the farm. And in ways she is good to people. She's good to her parents. She's great to her best friend who's a public school teacher. She's great to the African-American assistant who works for her. She helps that assistant whose name is Eve get into community college and study. And, and then the other side of her, she makes these very morally questionable choices in her work life, but she's not the only one in the farm who betrays people. She's the one, though, from my experience so far, who people hate. And I found that incredibly interesting. Um, I was in, at a meeting with my team at Random House where someone brought up her theory on why this is. And she said, you know, May you tells herself a certain story to make working at the farm okay. Oh, it's wholesome. It's great for the clients. They're dying for children. Oh, it's great for the hosts because these women need money and it will change their lives. And my this woman at Random House said, you know, we all tell ourselves stories to some degree to make ourselves okay with living in a world that's very unequal and unjust. And maybe that's why people have a harder time with her because her story is just more extreme, but it is some outgrowth or at least somewhere on the spectrum of the stories we all tell ourselves to be okay with the fact that our lives aren't all totally morally coherent. I need to think about that more, but I think there's something to that. And I think the inequity is so glaring in, in this, not just that these, you know, young girls who need money are having babies for very wealthy people who in some cases can't have them, but in other cases just don't want to stop working to be inconvenienced for nine months. And you mentioned a few things with money. One is, um, you know, one of the one of the immigrants we meet is afraid of banks. You also talk about at one point some people were going to Disney World and that you could pay more money to skip the lines. And even in the headlines today in the New York Times is about congestion pricing and costing, you know, pay, paying more money to drive into certain neighborhoods in New York, which is all of these things are only separating the culture more and, and you were in finance and wrote a lot for The Economist. Inequality is something that straddling these worlds, as I have and as I do, I think about a lot. Because in some ways, I wonder how I got here 
to be in a place where my life is stable and I don't worry about money anymore like I used to. And again, it's, it's back to this whole idea of is it, what is a meritocracy? What is merit? Um, do I deserve it more than other people? And the answer clearly is no. What I was trying to press on in the books in some way is um, not just that inequality exists and can divide us from each other and stop us from seeing each other, which I think is very true, but also the notion that more and more things in our culture and our society are for sale and how comfortable we really are with that, given the inequality that exists in society, because it will tend to be, it would make sense that when everything's for sale, it's going to be people without a lot of options um, and money selling what they have to benefit the people with a lot of money to spare, a lot of privilege, a lot of opportunity. And I find that question and that situation disturbing and also very fascinating. I have had a number of readers tell me that the book made them very uncomfortable. And, you know, that I don't, I only got to talk to a few readers in person, other it's through email and things, but I, I asked them why, like, what is it about the book that makes them uncomfortable? Because most of the elements in the book, if they don't already exist, they, they are only a few inches away from what we're already doing now. And my best hope for the book is that it's causing that kind of discomfort and those kind of questions. Like really, what is it? Is it, is it hiring um, underprivileged women to do something as intimate as carry a baby? Because we already hire underprivileged women to care for our babies and we outsource a lot to them as it is. Is it is it the idea of surrogacy? Because I think I know a lot of people who've used surrogates, my gay friends, people who couldn't have children on their own. Um, is it the idea that it, you can do it for aesthetic purposes? We already do a lot of things for aesthetic purposes. You know what I mean? Like it, it's not that far away, this world. And, and, and so I'm hoping that because of that, the, the, the nearness of this fabricated world, it, it shines some light on our own. What's interesting, too, I think about this story is that in systems of oppression, you can't survive without a rebel. And I guess what I mean by that is that when Jane was at the farm and she needed to see her daughter, she had friends in the farm or people who were already delivered babies. She had two white friends, Reagan and Lisa, who she had some prickly relations with there, but they were both empathetic white women to her plight and they offered her a way to get what she needed to get when all of the rules were against her so it just made me think about you know how you have to kind of understand the system to buck the system and how you have to have people willing to break some rules to get a few inches which then can lead to miles yes and 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 as you were speaking i was thinking of uh, the idea of agency and that hoping that this is not always true because that's pretty depressing, but sometimes agency is a privilege, right? Like the, 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 even the notion that you may be able to buck rules um, may not occur to someone who knows that she has no net like Jane does, um, who has had to live her life with no net and worrying about losing what she has. Um, the idea of entitlement, it's often used in a negative way, but there's also the good entitlement. Like I'm entitled to decent 
treatment. I'm entitled to stand up for myself. I know women who don't feel that basic sense of entitlement. And I'm no psychiatrist or expert. I don't know if it's because their lives have been so hard that they just don't feel they're allowed to ask for more. I don't know if it's because of something more personal to them, but it is something that I've noticed. And it really is one of the many seedlings that led to this book. I would tell some of my nanny friends, not just Filipinas, well, stand up for yourself, tell your boss this, or tell, you know, this advice that's easy for me to say. It's much harder to be in that situation where the, the power dynamic is so off to think that you really have agency or the entitlement to say anything. And so when you were speaking, I was thinking that in relation to Jane, that she probably needed her two friends who felt entitled to more to help her feel like she could buck the rules and was entitled to more. The more being, by the way, just getting to see her daughter. Can you read a passage that influenced you as a writer? This is from a book of essays by Zadie Smith. And she's writing about David Foster Wallace. She wrote the book Infinite Jest, which is very much a part of the farm. The ends of great fiction do not change much, but the means do. A hundred years earlier, another great American writer, Henry James, wanted his readers, quote, finally aware, so as to become richly responsible, end of quote. His syntactically torturous sentences, like Wallace's, are intended to make you aware, to break the rhythm that excludes thinking. Wallace was from that same tradition, but a hundred years on. The ante had been raised. In 1999, it felt harder to be alive and conscious than ever. His book, Brief Interviews, pitched itself as a counterweight to the narcotic qualities of contemporary life, and then went a step further. It questioned the Jamesian notion that fine awareness leads a priori to responsibility. It suggested that too much awareness, particularly self-awareness, has allowed us to be less responsible than ever. How to be finally aware when you are trained in passivity. How to detect real value when everything has its price. How to be responsible when you are, by definition, always a child victim. How to be in the world when the world has collapsed into language. Can you talk a little bit more about why you chose that? The whole essay is really about this idea of being finally aware. And the the notion that fiction, at its best, can jar us for the passive acceptance of life. um, To jar us into seeing the world around us and the people in the world around us anew and in a different light was really inspiring to me and um, is one, really one of the reasons I want to write um, the idea that you can help people in this struggle to stay finally aware in this active living that we're all doing. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. So, yeah. So since I did not write fiction until I started writing The Farm, I, and the year and a half of struggling to write was I just produced really terrible stuff. It's from the book, um, but it's just a little excerpt from it. Okay. When Reagan confided in Macy about Golden Oaks, she had been harsh. They were pre-gaming before a friend's party, half-empty wine glasses on the next coffee table in their living room. An ambulance on 2nd Avenue drowned out Macy's voice, but only for a moment. Surrogacy, this kind of surrogacy is a commodification, a cheapening, everything sacred, outsourced, packaged, sold to the highest bidder. Easy for you to say, Reagan had snapped. You work at a bank. I'm sick of depending on my dad, and I'd be helping someone have a child who... You're letting a rich stranger use you. You're putting a price tag on something integral. Live-in nannies, baby nurses, wet nurses, Reagan recited, saying whatever popped into her head. Blood donors, kidney donors, bone marrow donors, sperm donors, surrogates, egg donors. Remember those ads for egg donors in the Chronicle? The Chronicle was their college newspaper. 
It's classified section crammed with job listings for dog walkers, test prep tutors, after-school babysitters, and here and there pleas for egg donors. One of these had caught Reagan's eye her freshman year after yet another snippy phone call with dad. Stable, college-educated Buddhist couple seeking egg donor. Donor should be 18 to 24, preferably student and or graduate of Duke or equivalent top-tier college. Caucasian, blonde or light brown hair. Light-colored eyes preferable. Between five foot six and five foot nine inches. Athletic, healthy, spiritually open, minimum GPA 3.6, $14,000. Tell me why you chose that. So of the four narrators um, of the farm, um, Reagan was the hardest nut to crack. Uh, The other hosts at the farm are women desperate for the money. Reagan is Caucasian, educated, has a lot going for in the sense of a lot of opportunities. And and getting to the crux of why she's there um, took years and writing and rewriting. And so even though in this passage she kind of says it, she snaps it to her friend Macy, her roommate, in a sentence, getting to that sentence took me so long Um, and many, many rewrites of her chapters. Where do you write? I write everywhere. I write at home and I ship between the dining room and the kitchen. And I also write in cafes around New York, normally uh, close to wherever I need to pick up my kids. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? So I have three children. So when I'm not writing, I'm often with them. Uh, But I also take walks a lot. And especially when I was coming up with the the world of the farm, uh, walks were great because your mind sort of wanders. And then all of a sudden I would come up with ideas without even expecting to. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? So I don't always show people my work, um, at least the writing I've been doing recently since the book um, was sold and edited and it's done. When I was writing The Farm, um, I ended up having one main reader. She's the writer, Hilary Rail. And the funny part is I was introduced to her by a mutual friend um, and so didn't know her more than an hour before she agreed to read my work and promptly became the first person I sent things to. How have you dealt with rejection? So when I, you know, it took me, as I've said, a long time to get to writing a book, um, pretty much all my life. And so I, I didn't have expectations for this new thing I was doing in my 40s, which is trying to write. I did sign up for a writing workshop when I had about four chapters written. And I remember my first critique, the class trashed my first chapter, which is no longer the first chapter. They were right. I got rid of it. And it was okay because I actually didn't you know, I'd never done this before. I think it's, I didn't have a lot of ego invested in it and, and the outcome of the farm. Um, I was just into the writing of it and creating this world. And I think that helped me because anything that was allowing me to get closer to writing the story was good. I honestly never knew when I was writing it if it would even get sold. I was doing it for, it was a story I felt like I had to tell. It was something I'd always wanted to do. So. And what is your favorite word? Incandescent. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Joanne Ramos, author of The Farm. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.